Welcome back to The Civilized Savage. I'm Brett Morrison, the founder and your host for today. Hey, look, I just want to say a big thank you to those of you who are returning back to the podcast. And if you're new to this channel, thank you very much as well. So just quickly, for those that are returning, you will have noticed that I have not put a podcast out for quite some time. So when I say quite some time, it really has been probably 18 months or more. For those that have followed me on social media, uh, you would realize, you may be aware that my father passed about this time last year. So it was a bit of a, a an interesting experience for me to go through that, to allow those emotions to flow through me as a man. But what it has taught me in that time, though, is what's really important to me and also allowing me to understand who I am. And for those who are returning, you've probably noticed that there has been a bit of a pivot in the podcast. So in particular, there has been a name change. So I have gone from the Leadership Sensei and now to the Civilized Savage. And part of that is due because that of all the executive coaching that I've done around leadership, around business, a lot of it comes back to the relationship men and women are having with themselves. And so I've actually pivoted my coaching a little bit to not focus so much on the business side, but how to help men become better men. And so part of that journey is helping them to understand, bring the unconscious patterns that we have in life, those unconscious behaviors, our unconscious beliefs and values into the conscious framework of our thinking so we have better choices that we can make around who we are as men, as women, as adults, as functioning parents, functioning people in society and truly make a bigger impact as opposed to just making an impact in the business space. Because I know if I can help make an impact in one person's life on a personal level on the relationships that they build with others, then that's going to have a ripple effect which has a much larger impact and I think a more meaningful impact on the audience and also the people that are hopefully building the community around. So thank you very much for coming back. Thank you for joining me if you're new to the channel. I hope you get as much enjoyment out of it as I have as much fun making it for you. There are other places that you can check this out as well uh, or check me out and the stuff that I do. So you can go to YouTube and look at The Civilized Savage. You can go to Instagram, which I think is The Civilized Savage 2018. Uh, But to be honest, I don't do a real lot over there. But I also have a Facebook page called The Civilized Savage. And so if you're looking for civilized, that's spelt with an S, not a Z, because in Australia we don't use the Z in our civilized. We actually spell it C-I-V-I-L-I-S-E-D. So that's civilized with an S if you're from overseas and you're trying to track, track me down on YouTube and on Facebook. But I'd love to see you there. love you to join into the community and join in the conversations. So today, it's the first one back for, like I said, for, be probably over 18 months. So thank you so much for joining me. And today I have a special guest on called Mr. Joseph Lazaro. Now, Joseph is a dear friend of mine. And he's actually on a, doing a project at the moment around bringing awareness to the dingoes of Australia. So for those that are overseas, the dingo is almost, well, it's like the Australian wolf. It's our native wild dog. Uh, and they have been persecuted since white colonization came here over 200 years ago. And so I say uh, persecuted, they actually have a bounty on their head. I think the first bounty was uh, put out in early 1830s. And ever since then, people have been shooting them as much as they can to um, stop stock predation um, and all that type of thing. So it's not a good plight for the dingo. Um, And why 
this is so special, I guess, and personally to me, is that Joseph is the individual who introduced me to the two dingoes that we now have as part of our family. Um, so he bred them on his wildlife park, and we have them in our house now, or at our house, and they do come into the house, um, and they're just an amazingly beautiful animal. Nothing like a domestic dog that you could ever imagine, although they sort of look like a dog, right? So like a wolf looks like a dog, but they're still a wild animal, and I believe, you know, it's not like uh, they depend on us. They're very independent animals. They behave a bit more like cats when you talk about independent, but they form a bond, and it's a trust that builds, which is very special if you ever get to that opportunity to build trust with a wild animal. But look, I'd love you to stay with us, listen to what Joseph's doing. He's written a book. I'd love you to support the book. It's actually a small booklet that's available on Amazon. Um, there's a few links that you can go to as well. The book is called Dawn of a Dingo Day. Beautiful pictures throughout it as well. So professionally taken pictures of dingoes in the wild. It's a spectacular book. But just listening to the work that he's doing and the plight of the dingo in Australia. Hope you enjoy it. We'll catch up on the other side. Thank you. In recent times, there has been a resurgence of the dingo in the media thanks to a little dingo pup called Wandi, meaning manifestation of spirit to bring light to the plight of the dingo. But we also have Joseph Lazarow here that has been a huge advocate for the dingo with us tonight. Yeah, thanks, Joseph. Thanks very much for coming along. Look, I say I'm, I'm actually really excited about doing this interview, um, mostly because we've known each other for a few years now. Uh, and importantly, like, you're the one that really introduced us into a personal relationship with dingoes. I guess a lot of people know that we have a couple of little dingoes that we are caretakers for, and they actually came from your wildlife park. So I have to say, firstly, thank you very much for that opportunity, um, and then thank you for coming along today. So yeah. thanks very much. Yeah, thank you for having me. So what I'd like to do first up is just let the audience know a little bit about you. Like I know you were born in South Africa, and, and I guess when people think of Africa, they're thinking about like a lot of wildlife over there. How has that shaped or influenced you into where you are today? I, I reckon in, in, in all respect, I'm more of a naturalist and always looking for natural forms and orders in which to you know, uh, uh, exist. And being in South Africa, it was, it was interesting because it, it is vast and it is um, uh, quite biodiverse. It didn't really stimulate me in terms of animal awareness, um, but it did invoke a deep uh, understanding inside of me to uh, attune myself with nature and natural order. And this is where the whole naturalist idea came out of me. Um, but when I got to Australia, um, looking at the dingo, that opened a whole new uh, avenue of thought because I started to look at what really the dingo is all about. And I think this is something that's very, very misunderstood in Australia. So I took it upon myself to try to understand what we've really got here and see, um, uh, you know, what where we can go with this. Yeah, and I think there's a, a big journey. And it seems like the nation is ready for that conversation. For many years, I think dingoes have been on the back foot, and I think in many ways they still are. But mm. through the work of people like yourself, that conversation seems to be changing. Yeah. Look, I don't, I don't know if it's ready. I think one of the concerns I have is that that it's 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 not aware of the mm. issue. Uh, once the issue is addressed, then yes, it does strike an interest. But most Australians I find, uh, and this is from taking Australians into our dingoes to uh, sharing the experience with them, trying to uh, educate a little bit about what the dingo is about, most Australians up front really don't know very much about it at all. And I found that very concerning. 
Yeah, actually, yeah. Um, Joseph, just many Australians don't really understand what a dingo is. They categorise it as a normal dog. Can you explain the difference um, you know, with the uh, dingo canis? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll do my best anyway. Um, uh, uh, the big misconception is that the dingo has been thrown into the same category as a dog. Um, the problem is, though, if you look at the dingo and if you look at the dog, you've actually got two completely different animals. A dingo is classified not as a dog at all. A dingo is classified as a canis dingo. Um, but to really understand the difference, you need to look at their functional role, their functional uh, uh, um, uh, the, within, the, within the ecosystem and what the role that they play is. Now, if you look at the dog, uh, a dog is a predator. They do play a role in keeping animal numbers down. But they don't have a specific agenda in terms of uh, the effect or influence that they're having on the system. A dingo is a completely different animal in the sense that it falls, it falls under the category of uh, top-order trophic regulators, which means that its, uh, uh, its position on the food chain is at the pinnacle right at the top of the chain. It is the captain of the ship, so to speak. And its function is to control and regulate animal populations at that top band of, or the top link of the chain and keep that in ecological balance. Um, by keeping that uh, uh, level in balance, that then influences the next link beneath that and so on all the way down the food chain. Now, if you remove the dingo uh, from its position, uh, there is no overriding controller uh, on the system. And this is going to what's effectively or essentially bring the system uh, into some to, to collapse, which is called uh, a downwards trophic cascade, and that happens when you remove the um, control or the um, regulation from the top of the food chain uh, out of the system. Yeah, the uh, conservation protection of the dingo is obviously imperative. Now, if we view them in, as only um, an invasive pest, like a weed, we really risk exterminating a keystone predator, except you know for humans in establishing the biodiversity in Australia and this has been a really key um, factor that we're discussing uh, recently so um, there's a California Yellowstone National Park research it was as recent as the 1920s that the rangers managed to successfully remove all wolves from the reserve to safeguard visitors from potential wolf attacks however we fast forward 60 years later and the rangers were desperately seeking for a solution to salvage uh, a depleted ecosystem like you talk about. Uh, and what do they find as a solution to, yeah, to I, that issue? I think that, that, I think that whole uh, scenario, it was inadvertent. I don't think they realised the consequences by removing the, the wolf from the system. They, don't, they didn't understand its functional role within the system, just like they don't understand with the dingo. Um, and again, when they put the dingo back, the, the wolf back into the system as a solution uh, to try to resolve the the, uh, the the problem of the system that had collapsed completely, uh, they were in for a very interesting surprise. And that was that the wolf then took control of the system and began to function and bring the system back under control. Now in Australia, it's this we, we're facing exactly the same problem. Um, and I think what was learnt out of that was um, what the functional uh, role of the wolf is. Yeah. And you, you talk about this in the book that you've just launched, which is Dawn of the Dingo Day. So congratulations on the book. It's a, Fantastic it is book, a beautiful yeah. book. Um, and we've got a copy in front of us as we're, as we're talking, actually. And you actually explain that story about the wolves in, in Yellowstone Park as well, so, so beautifully put. If we can just step back a little bit. When, when you said you came to Australia and you saw the plight of the dingo, what actually drew you to the dingo? Because I know when, when I'm walking hours down the beach, probably one of the most common questions I get is, why? Why did you get dingoes? 
And so, because most people think, you know, they're dangerous um, and they're wild and they are wild, but they're, uh, they're a beautiful wild. Hmm. And I wouldn't ever say that they're dangerous, but what, what drew you to the dingo? Well, I've always had a fascination for wolves. I've, yeah. I've, uh, I think that they're very deep, very uh, spiritually driven animals. Yeah. Um, and I've always wanted to learn about them, but there was never really uh, sufficient or uh, uh, information that satisfied me in terms of what their functional role is. Uh, the Yellowstone story did open my eyes to that. And when I came to Australia and found myself in a position to, um, to uh, have an opportunity to work with dingoes, I realized that there is similarity here. And I realized yeah. that this is something that I, you know, I felt honored and gifted to uh, be, have the opportunity to uh, explore into the real makings or, you know, or the function of the, of the dingo. And that's really where the drive um, was born from within me. Uh, and then, I, of course, uh, I mean, I've worked with them for the last eight years and I've spent a lot of time looking for research uh, to validate my thinking or to at least uh, uh, learn more about them. Unfortunately, a lot of the research that I did find um, was really off the mark. They were missing the point. They were asking their own questions and they were implementing uh, the, their strategies based on their findings, which to me was uh, a serious mistake. So I started to look deeper um, I did find, start to find the right uh, um, uh, research and researchers and communities that, that um, realized and were recognizing the, the, the role of the dingo. And I started to gain my information from that. And then working with them and compiling you know, everything together, uh, this is eventually what brought me to, uh, um, to put it all together in, in a book form for the sake of uh, educating the public, essentially. Yeah. And it's interesting that you talk about the research and how some of the early research you found wasn't quite accurate and I quite often see in research that it does come down to the question that is asked because quite often it's not that the research is necessarily wrong but depending on the question that you ask for the research will depend on the answer so if, exactly. if they're coming from the perspective of industry or farming then they're going to get a different response to actually what is the role of the dingo yeah not as, a, as opposed to which is a different question to what is the yeah. impact of the dingo on farming hmm. and what can we do about that so the question can be completely different. So if we're looking at how do we, what is the role of dingo in the ecology of the country? Very, very different question, which is very different research, which is going to get you very different answers. Absolutely. Yeah, look, um, one of the questions that I know that I've come across as resistance is that there's no scientific evidence to suggest that the dingo came from from Asia. Um, and uh, so why is there the assumption? So let's just get to know the species for a second. Um so they're a canis dingo. They've got their own species. They are. They're not a wild dog. Their own species parallel to the wolf, but they are not, in fact, a wolf nor a dog. Um, in fact, I learned from Lynn that the Dingo Foundation, uh, a wolf is a much younger species. They never adapted to the gene that uh, domestic dogs received growing up alongside humans. Um, for example, they di- digest grains. You, you know quite well their, yeah. their diet. Can you speak about their diet? Well, they don't digest grains. They don't digest fat very well as well. Um, they don't have the genetic capacity, do they? No. Or cellulose, yeah. I don't know. They don't have that. I mean, I think that they've... I'm not sure if they've just adapted to the environment and, and, and the food resources of Australia um, uh, or whether that just is their natural uh, yeah. way. I don't, I don't really know the answer to that question. But um, they do survive perfectly off uh, Australian wildlife. But uh, I also wanted to say, though, um, I think that genetically they have been able to trace back that the dingo did originate 
um, in Papua New Guinea. Okay. Uh, we're pretty sure now that they do, they do, they did come from there. The question is how they actually got onto the mainland of Australia. There's a few different scenarios. One of them was that there was a land bridge yeah. at one point in time, about ten thousand years ago, where the dingoes migrated across, and then some cosmic shift yeah. and it filled with water, so they got you know uh, isolated on the mainland of Australia. And another one, of course, was that there were some seafarers that brought the dingoes across one, at some point down the line. Yeah. But the truth is that it doesn't really matter um, how they got here. The point is that yeah. they are here and that they do play a very important ecological role in the system, in fact, a vital role in the yeah. system, a role that the, the, um, the, the system can't do without. Um, and in, in terms of that question, initial question about dog and dingo, so the dingo... Uh, you can remove the dog from the system and the system will survive. But if yeah. you remove the dingo from the system, the system will actually have no chance of survival. Yeah. And it's collapsing now well, as a result yeah. of that. We're, yeah, yeah. We're, we're, at the t- uh, we're at the tail end of this downwards trophic cascade right now. Yeah. And that all originated at the, at the time of the colonization uh, yeah. when the farming industry began. This was 200 and something years ago. Uh, farmers started to lose livestock based on dingo tax. And um, their uh, um, defense mechanism against the dingo was to get rid of the dingo. So that whole anti-dingo sentiment was born almost like as a cultural heritage yeah. today. And uh, I think the first um, bounty was laid on the dingo in 1835. And this whole anti-dingo you know, sort of uh, um, outrage has been going on for ever since uh, until, the, until right now. Yeah, it's interesting. I read that in, the, in your book, and I thought, wow, that's a that's a long time. So we're, we're coming up to nearly a couple of hundred years that the bounty has been on the poor dingo. And my understanding is it's the only native animal in the country that has a bounty on its head, um, and it's actually an endangered species as well. So it's quite ironic um, that we have an endangered species; it's native, and yet people are still getting paid to to kill yeah. it. I think the ironic thing is that the thing that that they're trying to kill is actually the thing that's going to solve the problem. Yeah. Yeah. I I personally believe that if the dingo was recognized for its role um, um, and it was uh, mandated, its protection was mandated, I believe that the dingoes would reconsolidate. There is definitely enough purebred dingoes uh, in in Australia still that they would reconsolidate. They would reestablish their pack formations. They would reestablish their territory uh, and then keep their own specific territories under control. And that, in effect, would do the job that that the government is incapable of doing. Right now, they're dealing with a massive overpopulation problem of both kangaroos um, and uh, predators as well. Um, and th- th- that primarily came into being uh, by the removal of the dingo, removing that regulation out of the system yeah. um, and leaving animal populations to explode out of control. We're facing now the damage that that's been caused and we're at the tail end of this uh, downwards trophic cascade. Yeah. Yeah. Could you just expand a bit more? You talk about when the dingoes are allowed to take their natural place, they do control their environment and they, they set the, I guess, the environment or the, the, their territory. I know some of the stories I've heard from farmers that when they've taken out the mature dingoes and the young ones tend to go a bit rogue. Um, could you just explain a little bit on that for us, please? Yes. Um, for, for the dingo, their, their, um, their world basically is their pack and their territory. That for them is everything. They will, um, uh, they will manage that territory and keep it at sustainable levels. But what's really um, important to understand is that the dingo and its pack formation and its pack of 
influence on the system is only effective if the pack is in a consolidated formation. Yeah. Once you break that pack down, in other words, if you're, the, if you're targeting them, hunting them, if the alpha uh, dies, for example, and that control of the pack control is lost, the pack will then, uh, until it's reestablished itself, it will not be efficient or, or, or effective yeah. within the system. Yeah. And if you have continual bombardment against the dingo, so effectively what you're doing is you're fracturing the, the pack structure mm. uh, and, and not allowing it to, to reestablish itself, that then will have the effect of a negative effect onto the system by not keeping it under control. And that's effectively when you could have dingoes that would go a bit wild, be out of control. They actually need the control yeah. and the dominance of the alpha male and the alpha female who both have very very uh, specific functions within the pack control yeah and i see a, a parallel with society like humans uh, we were having a chat about this the other night where i think if you take the elders out of our society take our grandparents out the elders who have the wisdom that's when the kids they go a bit they do go a bit wild um you can see when especially when um you know I guess it's our culture at the moment to put our elderly into nursing homes and they're sort of pushed away as opposed to staying in the home for longer times where the mm. elder, where the, the grandparents are sort of involved with the young kids coming up. And, and, and it's quite often the case where the parents aren't busy doing stuff. It's the elders of that, and we call it a pack, call it a family, whatever we mm. want to call it. But they have a very important role to play and it keeps that community together. Absolutely. I mean, I think in any um, indigenous community, the elders are always the respected ones. Yeah. In today's world, in Western society, I think that's actually something that's lost and I find that really uh, uh, destructive um, because essentially that wisdom is not getting passed down to the youth who are then, you know, going to yeah. forge the, fu- the future. And um, I-, I see that as a really problematic problem. Yeah. Yeah, look, we've got established ecosystems. They have their natural order of um, coherence and they'll thrive, like Joseph says, if left on their own. And um, many scientists and advocates now for the dingo have stated that the removal and eradication of the dingo is a direct cause of many of uh, Australia's ecological problems. So um, that the protection and reintroduction of the dingo is the one and only long-term solution to the massive overpopulation of the animal species on one hand and the massive extinction and endangered animals, bird, plant species on the other. So when I researched and looked at the stats of the livestock that were affected and why people resist um, the actual dingo, um, it came up as being 0.01% of livestock that were affected. Now, is this just a statistic that the industry should accept? I mean, we're looking at 10 million lambs that die due to exposure to the environment a year. Yeah. Is that taken into account? Why is a dingo focused that that it's a problem if it's only point zero one percent? Yeah, I don't think I don't think the farming industry wants to recognise the truth about the dingo. I think it's an age old tradition that they've brought, or at least from the time of the colonisation, it's something that's been passed through from generation to generation to today. That the dingo is a threat to the livestock industry. It's not wanted. It's a pest. It's just damaging. If it wasn't there, the livestock industry would thrive. What's really happening is, and it, it, I think it's inadvertent. I have to believe that. I do believe that, actually. But they're not recognizing that they're actually mm. compromising the livestock industry uh, or the, the, the ecology for the livestock industry. Um, they're not, they don't want to look at the, the, the real statistics. They don't want to look at the real understanding. If they did recognize that by pulling the dinger out, they're effectively causing the, the, the ecology to collapse, um, maybe they would have to think again. And I think that's something that they really, really need to consider. 
I mean, I also have come across some statistics. Uh, one, for example, um, they surveyed uh, in a one-year period 13 million sheep um, and what the effect of uh, uh, dingo attacks were on that on that uh, number of sheep. And I think out of the 13 million, 900 sheep were lost. This was in one survey done a few years ago. So that's very, very minimal. Um, uh, but again, they, they don't want to recognise. Um, um, they don't. They don't want to recognise uh, the truth of the matter. So, Joseph, what are some of the solutions that you look that could possibly work in this case? I, I believe that I believe that if the dingo was allowed to protect, was 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 protected, and it could um, uh, reconsolidate, reestablish itself. I believe what would happen, and this, there is working models that do uh, that that are showing this in, this in 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 the United States. I think in Washington they do have a working model where they've protected the wolf uh, for the sake of the ecosystem and perhaps against the farming industry. Effectively, what came out of that was that the wolf reestablished themselves. They then brought the system back under control, which also meant that there was less predators in the system because yeah. the predators weren't allowed to um, yeah. to over multiply, and that also effectively meant that there was less predation on the farming industry. So the government in Washington is now recompensating the farmer for his fewer losses. That is a solution, I believe, uh, would work across the boards because everybody really is happy. The farmer is happy because, yes, he will lose something. And predation effectively is nature's way of keeping control. We can't do away with that. If you think you can root that out and everything's going to be fine, it's not going to be fine. So the farmer is happy um, because he's losing fewer and he's getting recompensated. The ecosystem is thriving, and the wolf is finally happy that he can go about and do his job, yeah. that, you know, yeah. what he's, for what he was designed to do. And I think the same in Australia would. Yeah. Uh, one of the um, other scientific studies that I looked at is um, over the fence. One of the studies said that uh, for every dingo that disappears, two hundred and ninety-four foxes actually replace that yeah. or move into the environment. So one dingo disappears and 294 foxes replace that environmental parameter. Now, there's also... Um, it, so it's obviously through this conversation that's fundamental to mandate their protection reintroduction throughout the Australian mainland um, as a powerful and long-term conservation strategy. Now, I know that Zach Foster from Save the Dingo had a uh, conversation with a local grazier and the grazier came up with the uh, leaving the dingoes alone. They had very few kangaroos, foxes and pigs, um, no wild dogs, no other dingoes coming into the territory because dingoes are quite territorial and protect their turf. The grazier also continued with, we get an odd calf bitten, but very few, much less than people who bait. We end up with more grass due to less kangaroos. We spend no time nor money on pest control because it is done naturally for us and we have great biodiversity. The cattle do better for this. Yeah, totally. That's coming from yeah. one of the local graziers yeah. that uh, had a conversation with Zach Forster. Yeah, I totally, Dingo. I, I totally agree with that, I, and it, it makes complete sense. I've seen other examples where that is happening. It is. I think it's exciting that that it is starting to happen, and uh, farmers within yeah. the industry are beginning to experience the the results of dingo protection uh, as a solution to their problems, and everything benefits from that. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I think there's another example. I think the Australian story. So on ABC, they ran a story about a farmer residing in South Australia or WA. Um, very similar thing. So he actually destocked his farm, reintroduced the dingoes, and he said, and they still experienced some loss. He said, but it's far less than what it was prior to the dingoes being in there. You will, you will. Um, and again, the kangaroo problem disappeared. Uh, they said they at one stage they couldn't actually 
they couldn't shoot enough kangaroos like they you could just shoot all day and they said you just couldn't see the impact yeah. it was making but once they got the dingoes in the kangaroos um problem disappeared yeah. so they got more grass which meant the cattle well actually they said when the floods came water that traditionally kept flowing through now it got held in so the traditional wetlands came back to the farm that's interesting yeah it was so but, but what that meant was that the cows didn't have to travel as far to get their water hmm. um so the calves were actually staying with the mother longer yeah um so they weren't a target then for predation so there's uh, so many other factors that came into play as like the first second you know tertiary order effects that come into play by bringing that, that apex predator mm. back in yeah um like you said there's a working model and and while his neighbors weren't particularly happy that he was bringing dingoes back onto the into the area he said the results were speaking for themselves yeah. the farm is far more productive far more balanced the the native grasslands have come back so it's far, which then gave the, the cattle more feed yeah no most definitely i think also I, I can i can understand the farmer's concerns you know don't get me wrong no. i'm definitely not anti anything i'm not judging anybody no. i'm not criticizing i'm just trying to find solutions um, I, and I think um, it's really exciting, like I said, that it is coming back slowly into the farming industry. But I do think just to build confidence, uh, trial zones, uh, testing areas, I think is very important. Yeah. You know, just to, to, to implement something overnight is not what I'm advocating at all. I think it should be a slow but gradual mm. movement in the right direction because I, and I believe ultimately when the dingo is protected, I think everything will bene- benefit across the boards. That means the farming industry, it means the... the, the, the um, uh, eco- the ecology, and I think culturally, as uh, a nation, I think Australia would uh, would deepen a little bit more if yeah. we had that real deeper understanding of you know what how how nature really works and how we you know what we really have in our midst. Yeah, and they are a highly intelligent animal, um, highly intelligent animal, far more than um, like I expected anyway. So we've learned so much from having us for the last I guess it's nearly been five years, but um, they definitely did behave vastly differently mm. in many ways more like a cat um in, in their behavior um unlike a dog which needs to be have the attention all the time the dingo doesn't yeah. need that they'll just come to you when they feel like they want to be near you yeah um so there's a very much a trust and a bond relationship that forms with, with the dingo and, and even talking to people on the beach when they talk about the travels that they've had they've been camped in the middle of australia somewhere and the dingo will just come through they said at no stage have they ever felt threatened by yeah. by a dingo which is interesting yeah i don't i don't think dingoes essentially um are opposed a threat to humans at all no uh, there has been occasional occasional incidences where it has happened very very rare actually i mean yeah. in recorded history there's just a handful of incidents that have happened the chamberlain case was one and yeah. most of them have happened on fraser island and that's primarily because of a bombardment of uh, the tourist industry into uh, a dingo-inhabited area. Yeah. And the dingoes have sort of adjusted or adapted to that. Um, I don't say it's a healthy adaptation, but you have to remember that we're actually interfering in their yeah. uh, uh, domain. And we, we need, we, we're the ones that have to change, not the dingo. Mm, absolutely. Now, anyone that shares time with their dog knows how intelligent dogs are, but um, let's take it up 10 steps with the dingo. And, um, Joseph, you've been instrumental in, in helping us shape our behaviour with our dingoes. And um, tell us about the development of the dingo between four to six weeks. The development of the dingo between four to As six weeks. As a pup weeks. and how intelligent they are. I mean, well... Really, I don't know too much about that uh, other than my own personal experience of raising a few pups. 
um, and this was just observing what was happening. I mean, in the first for the first three weeks, the mother will not let even the father uh, come close to the pups. If he does, she would attack him. Yeah. Um, she she guards them. He goes into a real depression because he really wants to do his job as being a good dad. Um, but and after that three weeks, he will re- he takes over. He's in, uh, totally in bliss, um, and the pups will you know he'll work with them. He'll train them. Um, so you can get close to the pups during those first three weeks. Well, or with respect for them, I, I wouldn't go close at all. Okay. I, I just yeah. totally respected what the, you know the parents or the mom was 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 yeah. demanding. Um, I, I didn't wouldn't even try to interfere. I was yeah. just observing. Yeah, nice. Yeah, because yeah. I think that's a natural instinct. Like when, when people have puppies with dogs, the first thing they want to do is you know, put yeah. it all over Instagram. I um, mean, they're in close, pulling the puppies away from mum. No, um, I think but it's interesting that you, you just let them have their space. I think it's so important, I think, for anything is like really to just see how it is and rather than to try to control it, let it be. I yeah. think that's the real genius with, with uh, nature is if you, we can learn to just allow nature to do her thing and harmonize with nature, we could go much further as a human race. That uh, is so true. So the females are only fertile for two days a, a year? Um, once a year for sure. Yeah. Uh, pr- Only two days uh, a, probably. a year, yeah, which is, yeah. yeah, the time is right. So what about the parenting skills or the alloparenting of the dingoes? Because obviously the, the males have a role to play here. They get in deep, don't they? As far as I know, as far as I know, the, 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 the male will um, teach and guide the, the, the pups, uh, or the cubs really, Um He'll train them. Um, they, will, they will prepare them. I think they work in conjunction, actually. I think the mom, she will be on the sidelines. She will watch. She will observe that what needs to be taught is to being taught. They don't really tolerate weakness. Um, if, they dis- if they recognize a weakness in one of the pups, they will um, go with them. They will uh, work them hard. They will try effectively to get them to bring out their own voice. Uh, once they've done that, then they'll accept the pup in. If they don't, they'll keep hounding them probably to to, to death. Um, so effectively, by six months, the, the surviving and remaining pups um, are ready for the wild. And after six months, they will kick them out into, into, into the wild. If they refuse to leave, the parents will kill them. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Now, even the uh, mating of, of dingoes now, it's, uh, a dingo will normally have their own rituals with, with mating. Now, they don't normally uh, allow mateship with a dog, do they, with a normal common dog? No, I don't believe, I don't believe naturally they, they, they would choose that in any, any way. Um, the, I think the dingo is of such a fine cut of animal. Um, uh, interbreeding is not, is not uh, by choice. What's happened in Australia is that, um, I, I believe, I'm open to correction here, but this is what I believe, um, that because dingo no- numbers are so low, um, at six months when the parents kick the dingoes out of the den, if the pups haven't don't come across a, a dingo mate, because when dingoes find their mates, they mate for life. Once they've bonded, you cannot separate them. No. So if a dingo, uh, if a dingo find a pup hasn't found a mate by the time, or at least a female, by the time that she goes on heat for the first time or whenever, um, if she goes on heat and there are or happen to be wild dogs in the vicinity and they pick up on the scent, there will be a, effectively a forced crossbreeding, yeah. but definitely not by dingo choice. But it's not her choice. No, 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 no definitely not. Mm. And I believe the same will be true that if the dingoes were protected, they would then gravitate back toward, towards their own natural species mm. um, and reconsolidate as a purebred uh, dingo species. 
Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that I'm, I'm not concerned that the hybridization would, would play uh, a detrimental role in the reestablishment of the dingo. I don't think that would happen at all. And that's interesting. I think that's part of the the ongoing conversation yeah. with dingoes. Is that we talk, well, I say we, the media talk about wild dogs, even government departments talk about wild dogs yeah. as opposed to feral dogs. So yeah. when we talk about domestic cats that get out into the wild, we, we call them feral cats. But when domestic dogs get out, we call them wild dogs. Yeah, but in mistake. the wild dog um, group, dingoes are caught up in that. And it's it sort of devalues the dingo in, in many, many ways um, because it, it changes the conversation. It, the, the words are powerful, and I believe words do have meaning and, and yeah. are, are very powerful in the way that we use. So, you know, the conversation around feral dogs would be a very different way to treat the feral dog population, yeah. and dingoes wouldn't yeah. be included in that. But no. when you just group them all together as this I think it's wild suits, dog, it, yeah. it suits a purpose. I think it suits the purpose, and the purpose is to yeah. just get rid of the dingo, yeah. yeah, just put them into one basket. Yeah. Um, but I think there's another question that they're definitely, definitely not asking on this front, and I think it's essential and it's critical because it does differentiate all, uh, the, the dingo from, from, from all other uh, canines. Um, and that is uh, other than wolves. And that is that you could ask the question, if the dingo or the wolf, is uh, its position is at the top of the food chain, what's going to stop it from over-multiplying? This is, is the, a good this is the this is this is the ultimate question. Yeah. Um, a dog um, would not function. Uh, a, do- a dog w- wouldn't be in the position to control its own numbers. But the answer to the question is that dingoes and wolves. Um, I'll say this for dingoes because I know this as a fact. They self-regulate. And this is a quality mm. of this is wow. a quality of a top order predator. The yeah. dog definitely does not fall under their category. Could you just expand a little bit on what that means? Because a lot of people yeah. may not even know what self regulates. Yeah. Means. The dingoes yeah. normally live for about twenty years, don't they? But in the um, wild, they only live for about ten. About, yeah. 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 yeah, I've yeah, heard about, between four or two. Four, five I think to like ten, that, sort of. Yeah. Depends. Yeah. Depends on the, the area. Yeah, but I mean, and, and the only reason that they they they, won't, they don't make it so long in the wild is because people are basically hunting them. Yeah, it's not because of predation or some other higher predator that's getting rid of them. It's it's it's, it's humans. Yeah. yeah, but normally they'll live till nineteen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty years. Yeah. yeah, but in terms of the in terms of the the way that they regulate their numbers, uh, so the way it works is that uh, one of the alpha females' functional roles within her pack is that at birthing season she will keep her pups alive, and then she will actually go to all the other female uh, dingoes that have had pups that season. And she will, uh, she will actually destroy them. The female, wow. She she will destroy them, and she, and she will. Uh, I think this is derived from their natural um, uh, uh, design of regulating and keeping the the, the system in balance. So not only they, uh, not only are they keeping prey and predator animals in balance for the sake of the entire ecosystem, but they're keeping their own numbers as well in their own in, pack. In their own Within pack, their in own balance. Pack. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, dingoes also won't actually tolerate another dingo from another pack crossing over the established border. If it, do, if it does, they would uh, attack it and kill it. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is interesting because Fraser Island, um, I guess, is a case study of pure dingoes because they have a very pure gene pool up there. Uh, and I know we've been up to Fraser Island quite a few times on, on holidays and trips. And I know one of the, the park rangers was talking about this very thing, like how the dingoes actually self-regulate. But they also have a challenge up there where the park rangers also cull dingoes. And I think this is part of this causes a problem. So if they take out yeah. the mature dingoes, they can have a spike because those alpha dogs or alpha yeah. dingoes are no longer around the pack to 
self-regulate. So they actually have had some spikes up there, haven't they? They, they have. Uh, I know of one case um, where one season they couldn't understand why there was this, uh, um, a big uh, surge of dingoes into the system. And primarily, the only thing that could have caused that was that they must have killed one of the alpha female, yeah. and so she at birthing at birthing season, so she effectively wasn't there to go and do her job by getting rid of the other pups in her pack, um, and so those pups survived. And that's actually when you're going to have trouble actually coming into mm. the system because those those dingoes there will be too many. They won't be under consolidated rule of of the established alpha male and female, and then they could run a while uh, a mock and. Uh, you know, yeah. have devastating effects on the system. The ideal thing is to actually leave the system, leave the pack alone, let it let it settle down, and let it let it do let it do its job. In that way, everything will benefit. Yeah, it's now amazing what, what one slight little change can have such a dramatic impact on not just that one pack, but the broader. In this case, the broader island, so the whole ecosystem yeah. of that island. I think also what's interesting is that on on the island, the fact that it's an island. Uh, you know, determines that there is no space for them to to, yeah. to migrate onto. They are stuck on that in that space, and they've established and managed themselves for I think over three thousand years on the island. Yeah. And the only way they could do that is that by that self regulation and that, yeah. that eco control. And so this attests to the you know the functionality of the dingo. We need to recognise that, and on the mainland of Australia, on the broader sense. Yeah. It's an amazing species, really. I mean, Joseph did say it mates for life, but it's not uncommon to hear or read stories that the dingoes have remained uh, with their dead or trapped mates, even resisting the urge to flee when humans actually do arrive, only to be killed themselves. Um, It's a real unshakable and genuinely deep bond shared between two animals. Um, And it's so resolute beyond its fears and beyond the fear of death that its, its instincts are to survive. It's a it's amazing species, mm. yeah. Now, Joseph, even um, with indigenous, with the indigenous, the dingo plays a sacred role in the creation of stories of various indigenous clan groups. Um, you know, being the totem animal, significant spiritual value as both a kinship family member and animal spirit guide of totem animal to many First Nation tribes all over the world. Um, I've heard like um, of cave art, you know, being twenty six thousand years old. Um, representing the dingo in in the art, so you know there's some proof there that they've been with the indigenous people for a long time. Yeah, yeah. No, there's no doubt that they have been. Uh, I think that uh, the uh, a lot of the First Nation people um, actually regard the dingo as a deity or a god. In some respects, I know in cases they actually buried the dingoes that passed on in their own human grave, graveyards. Well, wow. that's just with respect to really what the dingo is. Yeah, and they do play, I think, a, I guess that's where, how do I put them to words, where that cat-type behaviour comes into play a little bit, where they'll come to you when they want to. They're very self-assured Independent. Yeah, they are independent. very independent animal. It's not like, yeah. like I often see dogs and they'll just chase the ball, bring it back, and they'll do, they'll do that yeah. all day long. Yeah. Whereas a dingo just doesn't do that. And when you think about the Indigenous and how they... Um, allowed the dingoes to interact is on the dingoes terms it wasn't like they were forced exactly. to be there or forced yeah. into a cage or tied up you know the dingo came and went as it pleased and they formed bonds with with the people yeah yeah they would they would definitely form bonds with people they're very close to to uh, human energy i think they have a yeah. very deep affinity but i think one of the things also that are respected from the aboriginal 
perspective on the dingo was that I think at one point they did try to use them. This is thousands of years ago. They tried to use them like we would use dogs for hunting, yeah. but the dingoes wouldn't cooperate. So, <laughs> and respectfully so, and I think and the the Aboriginal communities accepted that and acknowledged yeah. that, and then let go of it. They didn't try to force them no. into anything yeah. and allow them to do their natural thing. But even so, the dingoes, many of them would stay in their camps with them. Yeah, you know, they, they, for for different reasons. Yeah. So there's many scientific studies that um, actually advocate for the dingo returning. Um, look, I even saw this 2014 piece in Anthropocene stating um, between 2012 and 14 they did a study on mammal populations and vegetation structure um, in northeast Australia savannah. And each location tagged an area where dingoes were poisoned to save livestock and on an area where the dogs have recently been left alone. And what they found... Um, were unanimous and straightforward where dingoes were poisoned, the cats pro- proliferated, and so did the wallabies and kangaroos. Um, the understory plants and vegetations were sparse, native rodents um, few, but in, in opposition where dingoes thrived on the other side of the fence, they found that fewer introduced species such as cats, foxes, and smaller populations of kangaroos and wallabies, thriving vegetation, and a large native rodent population there's your biodiversity for you so a lot of the research now is 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 in favor of the dingo returning look it's definitely it's definitely taken taking traction right now Uh, more and more people are realizing what we've got they're realizing what the role of the dingo is and the influence and effect that it has on the entire system you know and the removal what they call the, the effect that that would have and science is definitely starting to wake up to this no question about that um, it's governments that we've got to get the message through to, yeah. and in Australia's case, uh, the public as well. The public needs to learn what we've really got, because just by simply mandating the dingo protection, which would cost nothing, as opposed to the billions of dollars that have been pumped into the system to try to keep it uh, afloat yeah. or from collapsing, actually, yeah. um, it's, it's, it's phenomenal. Um, and the dingo effectively would do the job for for every, for the government and for everything and bring it back to a healthy state. I know you shared with us the other day when we were talking about some of the research that you've been doing personally about um, dingo populations and kangaroo populations um, and the impact that they have on each other. Could you just share a little <coughs> bit about that for us? Um, yeah, I can try. Um, well, the dingo in Australia is the only animal that can effectively regulate the kangaroo populations. Mm. So if you if you pull the dingo out of the system, there's going to be no animal that can really keep those numbers under control. Yeah. And this is the reason uh, that we're now facing a massive overpopulation of kangaroos. I think there's over 50 million kangaroos in mm. Australia this year. That means next year there's going to be 65 million. The year after 85, and exponentially the graph is really going straight up. Yeah. Uh, so as a result, or as an, as as an attempt to try to keep that the system from collapsing on that front, the government is now uh, culling across the country about five million kangaroos per annum to keep those numbers down. Yeah. And this is a major, major problem. And they can't really, uh, they don't really have a choice, to be honest. Mm. Uh, the only choice that, I guess, the, the only choice they do have is to recognize the role of the dingo because effectively yeah. the dingo would take control of that and would get those numbers back down. Yeah. 
So, I'd like to say one more point yeah. on this. There is one, um, uh, the only state in Australia where the dingo is protected is Northern Territories. Mm, uh, they are also protected in, in Victoria, I have to say, but in Victoria there's almost no dingoes, and they're also considered as a pest, so I don't really understand that. They still have a bounty on their head in, yeah. in Victoria, yeah, too, even though they're yeah. sort of protected in some areas. Yeah, but the point the point I want to make, though, is that in, in Northern Territories, um, the, uh, I, I was doing some research in terms of looking at, at kangaroo numbers in areas where dingo is protected as opposed to kangaroo numbers where the dingo is not protected. So in uh, every other state other than Northern Territories, the dingo where it's, they're not protected, they're, they're all facing massive overpopulations of kangaroos and having to implement this massive mm. culling a- annually. But in Northern Territories, the dingo, num- the, the kangaroo numbers or uh, one to two per square kilometer. Uh, there is no need to cull. That is well within the, the natural balance and boundary, um, and so they don't effectively have a, a, a kangaroo problem. And I don't actually understand why the other states don't pick up on that and realize that that is actually a solution to their yeah. kangaroo problem. Yeah, it, it's, yeah. I was, I'm glad you shared that because that was the part that I, when we were talking the other day, I thought was is very vivid. It's very like it's right there for people to see and unless people are prepared to pick up those studies and those that research and go hey look here's a solution waiting for us yeah um, they're just missing it. so what we got joseph here the expert so um obviously this species is an amazing um adapter to the environment but there are various different variations of the dingo within the species that um in australia aren't there joseph well look it's not that it's a different variation what's happened is that because they've been here so long at least it's debatable exactly how long they've been and the, i think 3,500 years, there's no argument they've been at least that amount of time. I yep. personally believe they've been here at least 10,000 years based on cave paintings. And the paintings. rock art shows yeah. 26,000 exactly. years. Well, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think we discussed but, that too, that um, if you if you look at fossilization, a 20-kilo animal being fossilized would probably be blown away by the wind, and so there's not much fossilization um, available because of that, because it's only, mm. what, maximum, a 20-kilo animal, sure. and so the fossil oh, yeah. normally doesn't yeah, yeah. survive such mm. a an environment, a harsh land in, in Australia. So fossils are quite difficult to find um, of, you know, 20 and below animal mm. of 20 kilos. Um, so that's what they do find uh, difficult. But when I say variations, I mean um, there's tropical, there's alpine dingo, which yeah. we only have about 20 of Victoria. in Victoria, the alpine dingo, which ours are. Um, and what else have you got? You've got uh, the eastern the desert, the and desert, the desert dingo. Yeah. 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 And yeah, I, I think the reason for that is that um, uh, the dingo is a very resilient animal, extremely strong survivor, and they've basically adapted to the environment that they found themselves in. So, in other words, the de- the desert dingo has um, evolved by uh, changing the 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 the, the, coat, the color of the coat, so you get a much lighter color in the, in the in the desert. You have the tropical dingoes. I think that they're um, the orangey color as well as the dark. Black, dark, dark chocolate brown. The yeah. alpine dingo is more orange. Um, on Fraser Island, the adaptation is that um, because they're on an island and part of their food source or resource is from the rocks on the at, at the beach, um, they've adapt, they've evolved to uh, a longer snout or adapted a longer Ooh, snout, really which good. enables wow. them to get into the rocks okay. and get the food. Yeah, great. Hmm. I, I wasn't aware of that. Hmm. Yeah, but no. Like when we first. Got out to, um, I just figured, I just thought dingoes were dingoes. So we've been on this massive learning journey as well and the, the different colors. So you can get white, like you said, you get the, the, the dark ones, like black and tans. And in some ways, the black and tan ones almost look like a Kelpie. Like the coloring is so, mm. so similar. 
Um, so it was really interesting to me to see that they are pure dingoes with very different color colorings depending on like you said, depending on where they live and yeah. the environment that they live in. It's an interesting question to pose too. Um, like Joseph said previously, if the female doesn't really, unless she's forced to mate with um, a common dog, what about the red kelpie? Is that true, that, that they're half dingo? I believe so. They are, the red yeah. kelpie, yeah. Yeah, I mean, people definitely do try to, you know, have, uh, to develop crossbreeds uh, for whatever the reasons, maybe for intelligence purposes. I, I don't know why. Um, I guess, I mean, the, the, the male drive, if it doesn't have an option, would uh, go for a female, you know, available female, whether it's a dingo or whether or not, but not by natural choice. That's, that's the problem. By natural selection, they, they would not do it. Unless you know there was a forced condition where they had no choice, and the drive and the urge was you know overrode their instinct. Mm. So look, time is actually ticking away pretty quickly for for us actually. So what I'd like to do is let's go into the dawn of a dingo day, the famous book that Joseph just authored. The book that you've just authored and have just launched. So where can people find you? Where can they find the book? Um, how, can, how can they get their hands on a copy? Because I think it's it's a great read. You actually got some spectacular photography and picture work in there as well. Um, it's just beautifully put together. Uh, I know that your daughter has, a, has a lot, <laughs> put a beautiful drawing on the back of it as well. Amazing artists. Um, yeah. Actually, they all are very talented when they come to the drawing. Well, we, uh, we, firstly, we were, we were we were honoured to to have some renowned Australian photographers who understood the cause uh, donate some of their photographs for the for the book. Um, so thank you to them. Um, we can get it um, on Facebook, uh, Great Ocean Road Wildlife Park. If you go on the Facebook page, um, I think there is a link there. Okay, so. There's a couple other spots too, just like I know that you're very humble and you don't always push the um, commercial side of what you do. I have to say, I'd love to talk about the park just quickly after we have a look at this as well, because I think the work that you're doing down at the park is, is phenomenal. So the places that you can get the book, so as, as you mentioned, you can go to the Facebook page, which is the Great Ocean Road Wildlife Park, and there's links on that Facebook page to, to actually get the book. But there's also a petition that people can link to on that about saving the dingo in Australia. Um, which is a great petition that's being run by Greenpeace. Um, but also another place where people can get the book is from the Australian Dingo Foundation. Some may remember the interview with Lynn Watson a couple of months back. Um, so there's a link on um, on her website as well. It's actually puppy season too. I just want to put in a, a blog for her. It's puppy season at the moment, July and August. So if you ever have wanted to go and see a dingo puppy, now is the time to get your tickets from the Australian Dingo Foundation or go and see Joseph's Dingoes from the uh, Great Ocean Road Wildlife Park also uh, to have a little bit of a uh, petting time with a dingo. Because that's one of the things that you, we actually haven't talked about, Joseph, is that you, know, you do actually run the Great Ocean Road Wildlife Park, and it's a very interactive wildlife park. People can feed wallabies, kangaroos, but they also you also have a run a dingo experience where people can go and yeah. sit with the dingoes, can't they? Yeah, we <clears throat> we do. We have um, we do take people into the dingoes to give them a hands-on experience. Um, it's more of an educational experience as well, where we're really trying to um, uh, uh, deliver the message across, you know, of the functional role of the dingo and, and the importance of its role in the system. So, uh, from that perspective, yeah, they can have that interaction. And it's, it's amazing interaction. I know the first time we did it was 
it's just mind blowing really um, to have that trust. I think when anyone has any experience with a wild animal in their environment, it's it can be a very humbling experience for people to be able to, to do that, and it's a great honour to be able to do that. So that's that's us. So thank you, Joseph, very much for coming along. It's been a great honour to have your experience and your wisdom shared with us about the dingo. Congratulations again on 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 your book. It's, it's a beautiful book, Dawn of the Fantastic Dingo Day. Fantastic book. Just having and, it on um, the coffee table, you know. I mean, for ten dollars, just absolutely amazing. Um, what a coffee piece, coffee table piece to have. Yeah, and highly recommend um, it. Of one of our beautiful species, Australian species, native species. Thanks, Joseph. It's been an honour um, with your wealth of wisdom to have you on our show tonight. Is there any last words that you'd like to share with the audience around, I guess, the things that you find so beautiful about the dingo or things that they can have in the back of their mind about the dingo and the plight of the dingo in Australia? I think that the most important thing, uh, pressing thing right now, is to recognise that uh, the system, the ecosystem in Australia is in dire straits. Um, the dingo, in a sense, uh, is the solution to the problem. Um, people don't know about what the dingo is. They, don't, they need to understand uh, how important it is. And I think if anything, uh, to spread the word, to, to learn about it, to understand really what its role is and to spread the word and to get the public aware of you know, what we really do have is one, I believe, the only way we're really going to get the system to change or the government to change their, their, their thinking. Well, there you go. That's the end of another episode of The Civilized Savage. Thank you for sticking with us if you got this far through to the very end. What did you think? Let us know in the comments below. You know, Shoot us an email or shoot us a comment on Facebook. I'd love to hear your thoughts around the work that Joseph's doing and the plot of the dingo. You know, There are some very strong similarities between the dingo in Australia and the wolf over in America as well and, and the, I guess the impact that they've had on the environment and the place in the ecosystem which is so vital and well quite quite honestly in australia it's very misunderstood you can do me a favor if you if you like the show hit the like button hit the subscribe for the podcast go over to youtube i'd love you to subscribe to the channel over there as well and hit the likes but more importantly share it with your friends if you find this is adding value to your life and adding value to you as an individual please share it what i'd love to do is build a community i'd love to reach 5,000 men and have an impact on their lives in the next five years which may not sound like a lot of people, but it is quite a lot of people uh, when you're first starting out to try and hit that number. And I believe that you know together we can really help to understand ourselves and get to know ourselves by bringing that unconscious, like I said at the start, unconscious patterns and behaviours and values and beliefs that we have into that conscious space. So there's a few places that you can join our community. Facebook, Civilised Savage on YouTube. Civilised Savage, so that, again, Civilised with an S, not a Z. So Civilised with an S. Please join in that conversation. Please join the community. Share with your friends and help us to grow better together.